Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 137 for March 27th, 2008, Ram Hijacks. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, everybody's favorite security guru at GRC.com. You're a guru. I guess I am. Don't have I'm, a, a year, I'm a year older guru now. That's fantastic. Congratulations and happy birthday. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not a big birthday person, but it's just sort of nice to note that I've survived another one and, and <laughs> got, I, I think I'm about halfway done, so. That's, that would be good. That'd be yeah. good. You're halfway yeah, there? My, my grandfather lived to 103. You're I'd like kidding. To like to beat him by one year, so. 103. Yep. Yeah. So you have good genes. And, I, you know, you're wiry and thin, which bodes well. You don't drink. You don't, well, you drink a little wine, but that's good for oh, you. Cabernet is good for you. Cabernet. And uh, you I work smoke, out 64 minutes a day on the stair climber. I had my annual physical the other day, and the doctor said, well, if all my patients took as good care of themselves Aww. as you do of yourself, Steve, he said, I'd, I wouldn't have a job. That's like, fantastic. Well, I'll, we'll, we'll, and I told him we'll be doing this in 20 years. That's so, so great. Well, con- congratulations. Happy birthday. Thanks. Uh, let's see. Today we're going to talk about something that is a very, very hot topic. Something that actually uh, we we missed a little bit because we did that TrueCrypt drive encryption story uh, a little early. We taped it early, and then the news broke that uh, you could, in fact, crack drive encryption with some very arcane techniques. Well, arcane, and I'm not sure whether it's this is a hot story or a cold story, <laughs> because a lot of it involves uh, spraying Freon on RAM chips uh, in order to extend the length that they, uh, or to, well, to slow down their rate of decay. We're going to talk about all of that and, um, and also about you know, the various means of accessing RAM and what it means, uh, these guys at Princeton just did a, did a fantastic job. So it's going to be really fun to catch everybody up on, on what's been going on with that. Well, we're going to do that in uh, just a little bit. Um, and we also, of course, have some errata and addenda. Before we get to oh, those... Oh, baby. Yes, yeah, we do. Let me, let me just quickly uh, mention uh, our advertiser and then... Or one of our advertisers, and then we will get to uh, the errata. Of course, it's audible.com. We do thank them so much for the support for this show and all the, twi- you know, they actually now advertise on every single show we do, uh, which is both a vote of confidence, I feel, for us, but also uh, a real support. We're really, we're thrilled that uh, they they like us so much. And I've been recommending on, on your show, I like to recommend sci-fi because I know you're a big sci-fi fan. Audible, I should mention, if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, you could sign up. If you're a new member, you'll get a, a credit towards a, a free book. It's a way of kind of getting introduced to the idea of listening to books. And uh, one of the things I've really uh, loved about Audible, initially when I first joined eight years ago, uh, they didn't have a lot of sci-fi and they've really gotten active about sci-fi. And in particular, Philip K. Dick, who I just adore. Yeah, and actually he's written a bunch of short stories that have been made into feature-length movies. I mean, oh, he, yeah. was, he, he, he was behind... Um, Blade Runner? Uh, Blade Runner Minority and there was, a wacky, Report? there was a wacky little one called yeah right Minority Report wacky little one called um, Screamers uh, that was also a Philip K. Dick based story so oh, yeah interesting yeah they've added a lot of Philip K. Dick to the library just recently so I want to point people in that direction and and uh, I mentioned um, uh, boy there's so many stories I mean they're Blade, you can get Blade Runner they, they you know the original name of Blade Runner was Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Yep, and they've exactly. re- and they've renamed it to Blade Runner so that you'll know what you're because <laughs> they want they wanted somebody to see the movie. Well, he's famous for his strange titles. Flow my tears, the policeman said. That's another one. But the one I want to recommend is perhaps his most important, most famous, "The Man in the High Castle." And I don't know if you've ever read this, Steve. It is. I've not. I just recommended it to my daughter, and that's what made me think of it. The story is it's an alternate history story. 
It's America, 1962. We lost World War II. The Japanese and Germans have partitioned the United States. In the West is the Japanese side. The East is the Nazi Germany side. Uh, The I Ching is as common as the Yellow Pages. Uh, If you're Jewish, you're living under an assumed name. A very powerful, uh, interesting story about descent. The Man in the High Castle is a novelist who writes the truth. Uh, and it's very powerful, of really a, an amazing story. And I think uh, this was the one that broke Philip K. Dick into the public eye. So it's a really a good one to start with. The Man in the High Castle, my recommendation this week, highly, highly ca- uh, captivating novel. But they've added many of his stories, including Vallis, uh, uh, Blade Runner, The Cat Who Walks Through Walls, some great... Oh, that's Heinlein, I'm sorry. Flow My Tears, that's the one I was thinking of. Very good stuff. You can also get Minority Report and, oh, A Scanner Darkly, they have that too. So uh, if you saw that weird movie and you want to read the book that began it, Philip K. Dick. That could be your free book, any book. 45,000 plus titles. They're growing all the time. Highly recommend you check it out. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. If you're not already a member, you can sign up. Otherwise, go there. You know, just look at the, the device lists for a device that will play on your computer, CDs, any iPod, many portable devices. I just love audible.com. What a great way to get a lot of reading done in the times that are otherwise wasted, like commute times. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them for their support. All right, let's get some errata and addenda. and all. Well, actually, yeah, we don't really have any errata, but we have a very important security issue, Uh which has just come up. Um, It is an exploit which is being actively exploited. It's been acknowledged by Microsoft um, this it, it's a it involves a flaw in their Jet database, which is part of uh, the Office suite and is is especially comes along with Word. Um, what what's happened is um, okay. I mean, for, first of all, the vulnerability affects Windows 2000 XP and Server 2003 Service Pack One. This vulnerability does not affect. Any computers running the Service Pack 2 of Windows Server 2003 or Vista because they run a different edition of the JET database. It turns out that this is this the, the MDB extension is the is the file on on the database file. There's an exploit which was found in the wilds. It was zero day. No no one knew about it. At least it had never been acknowledged publicly in any forum and most systems will not run anything with a .mdb so the way this exploit functions is that users receive a an email message with two attachments one is a word doc and then the other is a a file with the um extension change oh, that is sneaky and then the and when you open the word doc the word doc causes the database file to be executed which makes the exploit occur and and so so what's happening is th- this is a a targeted attack um for example it's been used in industrial espionage and attacks on government systems where where rather than just you know spraying spam people who are using this are are deliberately sending email to specific recipients mm. Hoping that they will they will open you know this this attached word doc and get themselves infected. So there is um, there's no fix for this. It is being exploited. Um, there's there's really nothing anyone can do at the moment, unfortunately. Well, except, except not ex- open email attachments. Exactly. Except yeah. follow the standard guidelines and just you know do not open email attachments there is a scenario also that where both files arrive in a zip file uh, instead of being separate attachments so but either way it basically the exploit functions the same way the word doc causes the database file to be executed which wouldn't otherwise be executable that makes the exploit happen so i expect microsoft's advisory acknowledges this they know it's in the wild. They're trying to figure out, you know, what all the possible exploit vectors are to make sure they nail it down. And they're saying they will either deal with it in the second Tuesday of April. Hopefully it will be April or they may do and this may be bad enough and serious enough that they will do an out of cycle patch. Um, we're going to be 
unable to advise people next week and the week after because we're having to to record those episodes early. So so there may be news of this in a week or two. Um, if we're not able to talk about it, that's why, because we've already had to record our, our right. podcast. So I just wanted to give people a heads up about this. Um, and also, I mean, I've been noticing Windows Update has been very busy lately. There, there was an update to an Excel patch, um, which was patched on March 11th, but there was a what they call a, a regression error. They broke something else in Excel um, when they made the patch, so they had to patch the patch, and that came out. A few days later, um, there is now vulnerability code, exploit code for some of these problems that were patched. Remember, we had the big Office Suite patch earlier this month. So there is now released and in the wild vulnerability code, um, w- w- which generally means we're going to see a lot more attempts of that. So, again, the, you know, the, the standard guideline is make sure that Windows is staying patched. Uh, at least for the patches that we have right now. You know, just I was doing a search for jet vulnerabilities, and there's a lot of them since going back for years. This is kind of a continual problem. There was one last year. There's one in 2004. I, yep. I'm having a hard time finding the one we're talking about. Here it is. As security Advisory 950627. I'll put a link. That's exactly the one. I'll put yes. a link in the show notes. You know, uh, people often yell at me for say, because I say don't open attachments, and they say, well, come on, not all attachments. And I then I say, well... I guess technically it's don't open executable attachments. The problem is people can't tell what's executable, and this is a really good example. Here you are getting a doc file and an MDB database, neither of which are executable technically. Well, exactly. And in fact, it used to be that, you know, um, that the file extensions would be changed in order to fool the, the filtering software. And there was the Microsoft added technology to open files by content right. rather than than by extension in order to solve that problem here we have a problem though that you know word is able to run scripts and documents are able to, con- to to contain scripted executable code which is you know just like a web page so this is i mean there's you know don't open attachments <laughs> this really yep. it's very straightforward i wish there were another way people say well how am i supposed to do business if i can't send attachments well, and, and to, to, to give this a little more strength, um, when I was researching the, the details of this, I ran across an interesting sort of summary from the Security Focus site. Uh, and, and quoting from their site, it says, uh, they wrote, flaws in Microsoft's Office productivity applications have become standard weapons for fraudsters conducting targeted attacks aimed wow. at high-level managers and executives, while 10 or fewer high-severity flaws were reported in the five major component applications of Microsoft Office each year from 2002 through 2006. At least 26 high-severity flaws were reported in Office applications last year, according to data from the National Vulnerability Database. And earlier this month, as we know, Microsoft patched a dozen, or patched dozens of flaws in Office applications. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so we're seeing an increase in the, the, the rate at which these problems are surfacing in Office. That's interesting because for a while it looked like the vector had shifted from uh, email attachments to web-based vulnerabilities, web-based exploits. I guess that's not the case. Well, and, and the Office exploits are slightly more targeted, as this says. They're not spraying them out to everybody because the, the, the likelihood of finding victims is smaller, and they would rather not have their actions discovered as quickly. They'd like to keep these exploits secret. I mean, you know, this JET database exploit that we're talking about here, the longer it stays unpatched, the better for the bad guys. Yeah. So they're not, they're not wanting to, to spray it all over the place. Right, right. And the one last little bit of news I wanted to mention on the security front was um, you you may have heard Leo you and I hadn't talked about it about the it was there was a bunch of furor um, I guess it was late last week about first it was it was Barack Obama's passport file that had been uh, breached on three occasions in January February and earlier this month in in March and then they found out that that both Hillary Clinton's and uh, John McCain's mm-hmm. passport files, all three of them, had been opened by contractors working for the State Department. Uh, the The cool thing is 
that it was it was State Department monitoring software, right. security monitoring software that caught these breaches. So I mean, too bad they th- caught them and couldn't block them. Well, actually, they caught him and notified people who then didn't talk about the fact. Yeah, that, but it might that have been, been better to, instead of having the, you know, monitoring software to have some security on there. Yeah, I mean, well, now, now, now the, the the problem, of course, is that this was an unauthorized access. Well, they shouldn't the, allow unauthorized access. Well, but no, I mean, it was it was something that these employees. by virtue of their job had to have access Uh, to they had to be able to do it but they shouldn't have looked there i mean in fact you know i'm reading stories in in the security space like this all the time you know you know police officers or law enforcement people are poking around in databases in files in other in people's lives that, that they're curious about but because they but and they have the authorization to access the database but it is a it is a violation of privacy rights for, for you know for them to you to be using their curiosity to direct their searches, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that's the problem is is you know these employees by virtue of their job have had the to. access, yeah. but they but they abused their access in order to you know satisfy apparently satisfy their curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, at least they had a monitoring system. They didn't have one before, so that's... Well, and that's my point, is that... And it's a rare thing still in this day and age for companies to have monitoring software. Normally, the companies just rely on policy enforcement and don't have that backed up by something verifying that the policy is being followed. Yeah. So, yes, th- this was a good thing. Yeah. And then I have one quick little short, fun Spinright story that was different. I always look for, try to find things that are different. Uh, the subject was uh, Spinright rules. <laughs> and this was, uh, looks like uh, Ravi Kicharil. I hope I pronounced his name right. He says, hello, Steve, Spinright rules. I have a myth TV box made up entirely, I love this, of discarded hard drives. Oh, wow. In my company, whenever a hard drive fails, it immediately goes Uh-oh. to the to the dark storage room on its way to the hard drive graveyard. I mentioned Spinrite many times to them, but they're more comfortable taking a new drive from inventory. There's always several new drives in stock, usually bigger than the last one right. that just failed, right. of course. So I asked them, can I have the old ones? And my boss said, sure. So periodically I go into the storage room, take the old drives home. Of the seven drives I've taken so far, six have been completely resurrected by Spinrite mm-hmm. and are working are, are working happily ever after. So that's a, that's an interesting point that a lot of times what looks like a failed drive isn't a failed drive. It's just an error uh, on the on the medium that can be either repaired or you know, blocked, and the drive is fine. Sure, that's a large percentage of them. I mean, that's a that's a huge number. Exactly. Yeah. Do you think that's that's uh, that that holds true across the board? Well, given the you know given Spinrite's proven track record, I mean uh, its ability to recover drives which have died in one way or another. I mean it 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 really does seem to be yeah. the case. Yeah, very interesting. All right, shall we talk about these exploits? These very interesting. Ed Felton is a brilliant security researcher at Princeton. He, yep. he he's always pushing the envelope. What? Yep, and in fact, you know, his name is very familiar to me because I see him being cited and quoted all over the place. Oh yeah, I think um, he was first uh, known uh, in the um, copy protection wars. He's done some really interesting research there over in DRM stuff. In DRM, yeah, he got he got um, he got in trouble for, and I think bowed out of. Well, he's done analysis of Diebold, uh, the, the voting machines. He's, I mean, he's really an interesting guy, interesting researcher. Yes, and in fact, I just saw an article about that. Um, somebody wanted him to analyze. Um, uh, he and Princeton were going to analyze another voting machine issue where there'd been some concern raised. Yeah. They were all set up to do it, and they got threatened with a lawsuit saying that it was in viol- that by the company who had the apparently defective voting machines preventing them from um you know analyzing what was wrong i yeah, mean it, yeah. it, it it's an example where our our dmca really does us no real service yeah he did a really good uh, paper on the secure uh, digital music initiative 
challenge. He bowed out of it because he couldn't publish his results, but he cracked it in a few weeks. I mean, it was like, these guys are bright. So uh, what's the latest? Well, um, what they did was, uh, and, 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 you know, many of our listeners uh, literally flooded us with reports of this when the news first broke. The, the great concern was that there was a little bit of hype, what I consider hype, and I think maybe our listeners, once they have all the facts in front of them, will agree, um, because the email that I was getting made it clear that people who were who were writing to us at grc.com slash feedback using the, the web form that I have there um, – they were clearly given to believe that whole drive encryption had been cracked. It had been broken. It, it was, you know, a serious problem. Um, that's, in fact, not the case, although what, what, what this group did was extremely cool. Um, essentially, what they discovered was that the contents of RAM stays available for longer than was believed. Now, historically, people have understood that that RAM could have sort of a latent image, essentially, that there was there was that the, the data stored in RAM until it was expressly and explicitly cleared would linger for some length of time. But no one in the literature that had been surveyed ever really sat down and figured out, okay, how long is long? You know, is this seconds? Is this minutes? Is this hours? Is, I mean, no one thought it was days, but people sort of, there would be sort of this general concern floating around that, yeah, you know, it memory doesn't, uh, it isn't like immediately lost even when power is removed. Now, Let's back up a little bit and and talk about technology because you know that's always the underpinning behind what we talk about that that I really enjoy and I and I know our listeners do. There's there's two types of memory essentially. Um, uh, that is to say, volatile memory. We we've talked a lot about um, um, flash RAM and and how that works. Volatile memory is either static or dynamic which are the two terms to, to broadly differentiate um, memory. Uh, the original memory that was created for early computers was static memory. And the what, what that means is not that it survives power being turned off, but that it does not need to be continually refreshed. Um, refresh of memory, and people may have heard like RAM refresh terms if, if they've been in the in the business for a while, is something that dynamic memory needs, and I'll explain why in a second. But but static memory doesn't need it. Now the way static memory works is kind of cool. Um, if you if you think of a piece of digital logic called an inverter, um, we've talked a lot about binary data. An inverter turns a zero that it receives on its input into a one, and and conversely, it receive it turns a one that it receives on its input into a zero. In other words, it just it whatever you feed it, it sends out the other bit, the reverse. Give it a zero, you get a one. Give it a one, you get a zero. So imagine a, a very simple circuit where you connect the the output of the first inverter to the input of the second and the output of the second back to the input of the first so you've got two inverters sort of in series they're 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 each connected to the other in in a loop well that's a stable logically that's a stable configuration if say that the first inverter has a, a zero coming into its input. So it puts out a one, which goes into the second inverter, which, because it's getting a one, puts out a zero, which is connected back to the first one, giving it that zero that we started with. So that thing can sit there forever, essentially. As long as power is up, those inverters are going to just maintain their state. Now, imagine that we briefly imposed an external influence on this. We 
forcibly yanked that it, the input of the first inverter, which is a zero and has been sitting there, we yank it briefly up to a one. We just force it up to a one. Well, it puts out a zero then, which goes into the second inverter, which now puts out a one. So that one that we briefly yanked up is now again stable. Well, this is another thing, a, a common term people may have heard of called a flip-flop. Essentially, it, it, it's, it's, it's called a, a bistable multivibrator, also known as a flip-flop, and it's the basis of static RAM. So, so to, to turn that into a chunk of memory, basically, you just have a, a ton of these little inverters, these little inverter pairs, all connected to each other, you know, connected um, back to back like that, and and you provide an ability for for reading out the state of any of these little flip flops, and also for for forcing them into to like change from their otherwise stable condition over to the the condition that, that you want to store. So that's how static memory works. The problem with it. Which, which our our semiconductor industry ran into um, after a while was that every single cell, that is every single bit, essentially these two inverters, this flip flop or this bistable multivibrator, um, it is, um, it takes a lot of space in terms of silicon to to create the inverters with the transistors and resistors and and the addressing logic and things that that you need in order to to force it into either state in order to read its its status out and just for the, its own little bit cell takes up a bunch of real estate what that means is that that as you try to increase the density and of course that's what we're always doing in the computer industry is trying to store more data in a smaller space you start having your chips getting too big or you're just not able to put as many bits on a practical size chunk of silicon as you would like to. So scientists, you know, these brilliant engineers that come up with all this stuff thought, thought, okay, how can we make this simpler? How can we somehow reduce the size that's required to store a bit? Well, they came up with something very clever, which is, dynamic ram what dynamic ram is is essentially a capacitor that is that's all there is as um with a little bit of logic around it but just a capacitor um a capacitor is a component in electronics which is able to essentially electrostatically store a charge you 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 put a charge on the capacitor by pulling electrons off of one of the plates or pushing them on. And as long as you leave it alone, um, it doesn't change. So it's a, it's a very simple way of maintaining memory. And that there's a bit. Now, the problem is, um, as you make capacitors very, very small. And again, density is our goal. We want to cram as many of these little micro-miniature capacitors onto a chunk of silicon as possible. As we make them very, very small, their capacitance, that is their, their capacity for storing electrons, diminishes. And leakage effects begin to creep in. Just, just sort of thermal effects, um, you know, electrons tend to wander off the reservation and so the capacitor won't be able to keep its charge indefinitely and again as is always the case we're trying to make these capacitors as as absolutely small as possible so we start running into trade-offs what the engineers figured out was that they could they could make the capacitors incredibly small to get a whole bunch of them on a chunk of silicon but they couldn't do that and have them keep their charge, for example, you know, indefinitely. So they came up with this notion of, of refreshing. And the idea is that, that all of the capacitors, all of the memory bits in a chunk of dynamic RAM are, are, are continuously being scanned. 
That is, what's happening is you you write something into memory, which either charges or discharges the capacitor. Um, if it's charged, it begins, it immediately begins discharging back down to its so-called ground state. It, you know, it, it starts to, to, to just self-discharge due to electron migration. So as long as you come back and read that before it discharges too far, you can see whether you had originally stored a one or a zero there. And as it's draining, as long as you come back and read it in time, you can go, oh, well, this is only 50% full, but that means it must have once been 100%. So you refresh the data in the memory, essentially recharging all the little capacitors that have been trying to discharge since you last swung by. That's how dynamic memory works. Yeah. So now if you imagine suddenly cutting the power to this, you have stopped refreshing, mm -hmm. but you've got this whole grid of little capacitors which are at their own speed and based on variations in the, in, in the specific physics of the material and temperature – they are all beginning to discharge as soon as you stop refreshing. So the guys who, who did this research, they said, okay, what happens if at normal operating temperature we cut the power, count to three, and then turn the power back on again? You know, what percentage of these capacitors will, will decay, and what can we do about that? So – the research they did showed that very much as a function of temperature, that dynamic memory would hold its data for, oh, um, well, okay. First, let's talk about normal operating temperature. Normal operating temperature, which is pretty hot, actually, you know, you know inside a laptop or inside a computer, you know, we're blowing air on all this stuff to try to keep it from melting down, but it's still, it's very hot. What they discovered is um, there's a great variation in decay rate based on the, tech the, the technology being used, the newer RAM being even more dense, meaning the capacitors are even smaller, tend to decay uh, to like maybe 10% um, uh, will, will decay in as, in as short as one or two seconds. So you have like 10% loss of information in one or two seconds without refreshing, or that is to say without power um, on, on the DRAM. And at, again, at normal operating temperatures, they found a couple older dynamic RAM chips that, oh, maybe the, you, you could get as much as 10 seconds before you lost. Oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 the, the, the charts that I was looking at, we're talking about um, – uh, fifty percent loss of information in one or two seconds or ten seconds. Okay. So, so you know, so in ten seconds, even I mean, the best these guys found was at normal operating temperature, half of the capacitors had discharged to their ground state within a maximum of ten seconds. Now, we talked about how the reason these capacitors are discharging is electron migration through the the dielectric the the insulation which is what makes the capacitors possible well naturally as we know from physics and chemistry temperature has a has a substantial effect on the rate of all these kinds of processes so what what the what the researchers did was they said okay let's you know what could we do to extend this time for some sort of, you know, whatever purposes? We want to see, you know, how much time can we get? So they just took those little spray can of air bottles, and they, it turns out when you turn them upside down and spray them, you, you know, the, the, the Freon comes out, and it, it cools these things down way far. They, they, were, they were cooling them down to, I think, negative 50 degrees C, and there, not surprisingly – by by freezing the DRAM, they were essentially able to dramatically slow all of the physical processes going on 
in the DRAM, which would otherwise be facilitating the capacitance discharge. And they were able to come back an hour later that I have this little DRAM um, chip out of a computer sitting on a desk, spraying it with Freon to keep it cold. And then an, an hour later, plug it into a computer and read out the majority of its data by by freezing it down. And in fact, they they also dunked it in in um, uh, liquid something hydrogen nitrogen. nitrogen I'm not sure. nitrogen. Right? I'm not sure what it was. They, they have but, to do that they, pretty quickly because you only have a second or two to, to if you want to save everything, right? Well, yeah. Well, and the other thing is, Leo, Leo. I mean, they they, they sprayed this while the machine was on, right? I mean, I mean, right. so that, well, you want to like, cool okay, it down well, before you you remove power, right? It, exactly. Yeah. Then so, then maybe you have some time. You could dunk it and get even more time out of it. Okay, so the the so so okay, so now we have a, a, a good foundation for understanding what they did. As, as they they were using they were using Freon to slow down the the loss of data from dynamic RAM. We understand how dynamic RAM works and and why you get this you know bit errors. What they did that I think was the coolest was they said, okay, we're going to we're after some number of seconds, we're going to as quickly as we can, take a snapshot of what we've been able to maintain in the presence of known bit errors of RAM. Now the question is, how can we use that data? What can we find in there? And what, what, one of the things they did, and, and their paper that you and I both have links to, um, you on, on, the, on your show notes for this episode and, and me over on mine, um, what they did was they said, okay, let's go after encryption keys. Let's, you know, let's look at BitLocker and TrueCrypt and, and, you know, major whole drive encryption, which is, you know, because it's exciting and it's fun. You know, what can we do? Well, okay, take, for example, a, a strong 256-bit key um, and let's talk about AES because we've we've covered um Rheindahl, the the um the AES standard at length recently um and talking about exactly how that works so so we take a, a key of a certain length well we know that that as you start changing bits in that i mean you change one bit and you you've you've got something that doesn't work at all so so given some percentage of of bit drift caused by the the dynamic ram being you know disconnected from its refreshing for some length of time you would think okay you know you're you're screwed immediately i mean you've got you you, you know this this key changes it all and it's useless yeah but remember that in the details of the way aes works there's something called um key expansion which we talked about. The idea is that, for example, in Rheindahl and in uh, virtually all other symmetric ciphers, there are some number of rounds. That is that uh, essentially a round is a reversible bit scrambling, meaning that it maps any set of bits that you're inputting that you're going to encipher or encrypt. It maps them into exactly one other pattern, in a way that is reversible. That's the whole point, of course, is being able to decrypt what you encrypt. But the that that mapping itself, doing it once, is not secure. So the ciphers work by iterating through this, doing that some number of times. Well, every one of those rounds requires some data from the key. And for example, in the course of in, in, in the case of AES, we take the key, and there is a there's a chunk of entropy, a, a, a big table of of data which is part of the AES spec, which has been chosen, and all AES implementations use the same big chunk of entropy. The key is mixed in a in a in a in a cryptographically secure fashion and data is taken from that table that generates the data which is for example xored with the output from each of the rounds every time through the point is that 
the key, the original Rheindahl key, is used to it's it's expanded through this key schedule or key setup as it's called to create this this chunk of data which is then used um, each piece of it for each round of the cipher. What the guys realized was that data is like error correction code. It's like ECC that we've talked about on a hard disk, meaning that the key is expanded to something much bigger and inherently has much more redundancy in it. The individual bits in the key have no redundancy, but when you use them to expand this into the key schedule, you've got a tremendous amount of redundancy. It can be used like error correcting code and they worked out all the details to reverse engineer the exact key from a from the key expansion and the key in under the assumption that there were unknown random bit errors and and they did the math and it works so it is it is it's extremely cool essentially they said okay you know we're going to we're going to experiment with decay rates in dynamic ram we're going to figure out um what kinds of levels of bit errors we can expect we're going to experiment using temperature using cold to slow down the decay rate and then we're in the in the presence of known errors we're going to see whether we're able to reconstruct a key knowing, you know, that Rindall was used here or whatever it is. Well, in fact, BitLocker uses Rindall also, but but in but in a, in a, in a different way. Um, and oh, and they also did the same thing with DES. It turns out the DES's key schedule is extremely straightforward, so it was very simple for them. In a even in the presence of a high degree of of bit loss. Of, of bit decay to reconstruct an, an original DES key and even triple DES. So, you know, so essentially that's what these guys did. Um, it was promoted, of course, as look, you know, we're able to, to take a chunk of DRAM, which was briefly without power or without refresh and or or for example went through a cold boot which is what they often did was they simply hit the reset button so the ram was not being refreshed for some length of time and then the system came back up and then it, but so there was some some level of loss and so they were able to say we're able to to come back after a brief period of time at again like maximum of a few seconds at normal operating temperature, or if if the situation permits it, if we're able to cool the DRAM down, we can, I mean, and really cool it down, we can go as much as hours or days and then bring the RAM back to life, capture its data, and even though we know we've got errors, we are able to, by knowing, by, by taking advantage of what we know about the way symmetric ciphers work um, and they did some also some work with with public key crypto as well because again the the idea is that that while you are using the cipher that key is expanded so that key expansion all that extra redundancy is there in memory because it needs to be used dynamically you just in terms of of performance you cannot you cannot afford to expand the key on the fly every time you want to for example read or write a sector to and from the disk that overhead would just be really prohibitive so it's done once and the point is if you if you capture the system if you if you if you're able to get a snapshot of memory even in the presence of errors they've demonstrated that it's possible to reconstruct the keys of you know virtually all of the of the whole drive encryption products that they attempted so it was it was very cool. Uh, well, what's very impressive too, and uh, and they really do good work. Um, so, but I also gather from what you say that this is not something that's going to be easy for a hacker to do to you. Well, okay. Now there's some other things we have to cover um, when we're talking about RAM hijacks, but I wanted to first discuss how it's this done. Per- yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, this particular type of RAM hijack, which is you know the very intrusive, get your hands on the DRAM. I mean, you would 
you would hardly allow anyone to grab your laptop and um, you know, turn it over and spray Freon on the memory if they were able to even find the memory in your laptop. Right. I mean, it would be obvious to you that, that this was going on. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. And now, let's just also, I, I want to emphasize this as well. They have to get your laptop while you're logged on. And once you've logged off, the key's gone, right? Um, yes. Um, in the case of, we know that it's, it's the case of with the, with the Mac because um, they did some work with the Mac. When you log off, your keys are scrubbed. Right. Um, I'm happy that this came to the attention of TrueCrypt. Will in- fix this, right? I, I mean, was just going to say yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that I, I'm really happy that this came to the attention of the industry at a period of time when TrueCrypt is is under active development as it's moved into version 5.0. Because I mean, Leo, you can imagine if I got a lot of email. Can you imagine right, the, uh, right. the the amount of email right. that the poor TrueCrypt guys got when 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 this thing surfaced? So anything that the TrueCrypt guys can do to minimize the danger, and, and essentially what it means is it means when when you're not actively needing to have access to the encrypted resource, the whatever it is, TrueCrypt or BitLocker or the the Apple Drive encryption technology, it wants to actively scrub these keys from memory. You can either write nonsense over it or zeros. I mean, there there isn't the issue that we've discussed several times with hard drives where you're actually able to find what was stored there before. As you can imagine with these little capacitors, I mean, they're doing all they can just to hold on to the charge they've got. There, there, there isn't any notion of of what was there before, although there there has been some study that showed that memory also has a bit of burn-in feature. In the same way, remember that you know that that screensavers were originally created to quote save the screen mm-hmm. because if an image was sitting on a screensaver for a long period of time, the phosphors were aging. Well, because there's a physical process there. Well, as we've just been saying, RAM, dynamic RAM, has a physical process going on, and there has been some studies that showed that. If the da- if the same data was always being stored in the same place, that it might actually be possible to come along and take advantage of long term physical changes in the memory. So, we, which is sort of interesting. It's like, well, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it it would take a lot of research, and it would mean that memory would would literally have to be burned in the same location in modern operating systems. That's probably unlikely because there's a whole layer of, of paging which occurs, which associates physical memory with, with its logical addressing. And it, it probably means that, that, mem- that in just normal data is going to be moving around in physical memory and not in the same place all the time. But it's something for re- really security conscious designers and developers to, to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... The other interesting things, which are sort of fallouts from this, there are a couple. For example, um, you could take a USB dongle, which is bootable, and create a very small boot OS, which takes a snapshot of memory. And you want it to be a small footprint in the OS because, of course, the OS is going to have to run in the same memory that you're trying to take a snapshot of. Mm-hmm. So you you don't want to do too much. But, for example, um, these researchers did experiment using PXE, which is Intel's specification for network booting, saying, OK, l- let's reboot a system and, and use the, the network boot ROM that is on the motherboard's BIOS to essentially install a very small footprint OS, just enough to to do a, a, a essentially a remote RAM suck through the network interface. So that was one, one thing that they did. You could also do the same thing with a, a small USB dongle that is able to boot and and use it to snapshot the system memory. And then the the one other really interesting aspect of ram hijacking which has actually been floating around for years is firewire it turns out that firewire as part of the spec 
um, you know, it, it's OHCI at the open host controller interface. It turns out that the open host may be a little more open than these people intended. Um, it turns out that the FireWire spec supports direct memory access. It really is a bus. It is a bus just like the bus that you plug cards into through the, 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 the 1394, the FireWire controller. And so it is possible for someone to create a FireWire gizmo, which would, when, when plugged into a laptop's FireWire port, it would declare itself as needing access to direct memory, that is direct memory access, DMA, and it can then suck out the system's RAM through the FireWire port. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, if, so if you had such a device, like a USB key, it would actually do the same thing reading the RAM as you, you have to do with all this freezing activity. Exactly. Well, and, and in fact, um, you, you may have some loss depending upon what, what the USB key does. I mean, certainly when we, you know, we've talked about auto start and how, and how much a concern it is that when you plug a USB key in, you know, it, the OS will, will automatically run things. You know, it, it always has made our listeners uncomfortable and deservedly so that, that an OS is configured by default that is modern OSs where you plug the USB key in and it has the chance to run code. I mean, that's the convenience, for example, of using traveler mode on, on a true crypted drive is you plug it in. It's it is running the true crypt driver automatically when you do that. Well, there's nothing to say it can't be running a RAM-sucking little executable that just simply copies all of the system RAM out to the thumb drive. I mean, to, to, to literally <laughs> to, hij- to, to, yes, to hijack your system. Nothing prevents that. Wow. Now, it's worth noting, though, that there are other vulnerabilities, for example, in typical laptops. For example, uh, many laptops have a PCMCIA card or an Express card. Those are the system bus. So similarly, nothing prevents you. I mean, it is access to the system's bus. If you plug something in there, that device is on the bus, which gives it access to the system's memory. And for that matter, laptop docking connectors. You know, they're all different based on laptop um, make and model, but they're also the laptop's bus. So... So I sort of wanted to create a little more perspective on, on, on this whole issue and say, you know, um, physical access to our systems is almost never secure. I mean, right, you know, right. that's the case. If you're going to allow someone to spray Freon on your dynamic <laughs> ramp, what are you going to do? And then and then take it with them. Okay, well, hey, that's not that's not very secure. Right. You know, you, you can hope that they lose more bits than they plan to. You know, but but I guess the point is it's 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 certainly of academic interest that that not that data can be slowed down without power in from loss in dynamic memory and that clever algorithms can be used to reconstruct a, a low amount of bit loss in order to reconstruct someone's keys. But if you turn your laptop off and you count to 10 that your data is gone. And it's certainly the case that that now that this has gotten all the attention it has, and I'm glad it has, if there were any vulnerabilities, or if, for example, in the case of the TrueCrypt guys, you know, whose intentions are very clear, if there's anything they can do to minimize the window of exposure, they will. For example, you know, make it incredibly fast and easy to dismount TrueCrypt and a uh, TrueCrypt volume and wipe the key. So and so that would require that you reauthenticate. But, you know, people who want that security, well, you know, may want to, you know, for example, when you hibernate or when you suspend your system, it's certainly possible for the true crypt drivers to to see that that's gone on and then, you know, deliberately unmount 
um, as they're able to, and then require you to reauthenticate in order to regain access to your now un- unmounted partitions. I, I mean, you, I understand what you're saying when you say, you know, if somebody's got physical access to your system, you're in trouble. But I guess the point of these tr- full disk encryption systems is to protect them in, in that eventuality, because otherwise you don't really need full disk encryption. I mean, if somebody doesn't have physical access to your system, what are you worried about? Okay, my right. My feeling, though, is that that, you know, the proper way to think about this is, you know, if someone if you lost your laptop, if you left it in the airport or someone swung by and, you know, sneaked away uh, with it in in, in an area where it was unsecure, you absolutely want to make sure that in when the laptop is not in use, it cannot be put back into use without requiring you know, full strength re-authentication of its user. So it may be the case that, for example, just putting it into standby, as we know, a laptop on standby is having its dynamic RAM refreshed. That's that's what standby is. It's the reason right. it's using a little bit of battery power, right. unlike hibernation, where the whole contents of RAM is copied to the hard drive and then the system is shut down. It is powered off and you can I mean you, you can pull the battery out of it for as long as you want to. That hibernating image exists then on on the hard drive. Now you didn't now, address the issue of the uh, hibernating image, did you? I mean can you can you do the same kinds of tricks to that to get the key out of it? Um, no, we know that the hibernating image is encrypted. Um, I don't know whether a decrypted hibernating image requires reauthentication. That would be something uh, that we would want to check on. But I mean, yeah. I would bet it does. I would bet that that the 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 keys are wiped, then the in, the image is encrypted and written ah. to the drive. So, so that when it comes back, you need to reauthenticate coming out of hibernation. Right. I'm, I'll, I would, I, I bet anything that that's the way. Well, this guy's until doing. we find that out, though, the 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 most prudent thing would be to shut it down. Certainly, powering off your machine and then, and then not handing it to a stranger immediately. Give immediately, it, what would be a prudent amount of time? A minute, especially a stranger who's got holding a can of Freon. <laughs> would a minute be enough? Oh, 10 seconds, Leo. I mean, really. It's, it's pretty quick. Well, I mean, and and anything even more recent is down at a second or two. Right. I mean, they, they've managed to find some old, less dy- le- less dynamic, dynamic RAM, less dense, right. where they were able to get like, you know, 10 seconds, kind of. Okay. But I mean, really. So, so to, just- be, to be prudent, if, you, if you're using full disk encryption and you shut your system down and you hold on to it for 10 seconds, you're safe. Yeah, then give it to anybody you want. <laughs> then if it gets, well, no, more to the point, then if you leave it in a taxi or it gets stolen, you don't have to freak out because none of these techniques work unless the system is logged in. Yeah, in fact, I would I, I would argue that it's probably the case that with TrueCrypt, you are more safe because given that TrueCrypt wipes the keys and encrypts the RAM, to the drive, right. such you know, then you're you're getting explicit wiping of of the mount right. of TrueCrypt. So so the moment the hibernation is finished, it's safe. You don't you no longer have that ten second wait. If you power down, leaving the system mounted, then you power down with the the keys in service in use. Then you've got to wait. A few seconds. I mean, most people are going to, you know, turn the machine off. Then they're going to be wrapping up their cables and putting it into their in, into its laptop case right, and putting things right, away. Right. I would say, you know, turn the machine on, turn your laptop off first. And then when you're busy, you know, doing everything else to 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 get it stowed, it's completely forgotten everything it ever knew. Right. So it, it's not sensationalistic. I mean, but in fact, it's a it's a valuable research project to let people know that this vulnerability even exists is saying something. I'm particularly interested in the U.S. key B key vulnerability. I mean, that's Leo, kind of amazing. It is a perfect episode yeah. for security now. Yeah, that's about what it is. I mean, it, yeah. it's a really intriguing academically, but it, it isn't going to affect anyone's life right. because memory, you know, DRAM doesn't forget what it knows instantly, but it does Fast very enough. quickly. Yes, <laughs> very enough. quickly. Okay. Very good. I'm glad. You know, I think there was a lot of uh, concern in all seriousness. There were a lot of people were worried um, and so nothing to worry about. 
Yep. Okay. Well, or at least we, I mean, we know what again, to do. Yes. I was going to say the, the threat is now understood and, and I'm glad the true crypt guys knows. Um, I'm glad the BitLocker folks know. And apparently there was some work that Microsoft did in awareness of this for the design of BitLocker. Um, the, 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 the researchers made the point though, that there is a, there's, I think they call it basic mode with BitLocker, where it works with the TPM module that we've talked about on the motherboard, the trusted platform module. Uh-huh. So, I, so I guess saying TPM module is redundant. I got two modules <laughs> in there. Yeah. It works with the, with the TPM. Um, the problem is in the basic mode, the TPM by default provides BitLocker with the keys on the fly without requiring authentication. Uh, see, so then you're a problem anyway. You turn on your machine and hello. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So anyone could take it and right. turn it on and, and get what you want. So don't, you know, I'm, I'm sure any of our security conscious users understand that uh, requiring authentication, while it's a bit of a headache, I mean, it's protecting you from exactly that. Right. Yeah, I never mind logging in. I know that I'm, that feels good. Yeah, it's yeah. safe unless you do. Steve, we uh, w- want to thank the folks at Astaro before we uh, run out of here. Astaro is our great sponsored has been for some time you know i was just reading a white paper that they did i thought this was very interesting i got it from ars technica um, i imagine you could get it from the astaro website too. open source security myths dispelled this is for it departments to help uh, make that choice between proprietary and open source security solutions um, it says they ask the wrong questions when evaluating their options and unnecessarily limit their it solutions so it's it, you know uh, as you know astaro supports open source they're Astaro Security Gateway is a best of breed in both open source and closed source software to protect your enterprise. They now have, they announced it at the RSA conference. We could talk about it now. The new Astaro Web Gateway, an easy to use appliance to give you complete control over a data transferred over the web. This solves a lot of those issues with exploits on websites, for instance. You get uh, complete malware detection, but you also get application control, you know, P2P and IM. You also get uh, URL filtering, so you can control what your employees are doing on company time. Uh, bandwidth management. It's very easy to use, and it uses, of course, Astaro's famous up-to-date service to make sure that it's always up-to-date. Now, really, there's a range of products. De- depending on what you need, Astaro's got it for you. I want you to visit Astaro. Uh, you can either go to their website, astaro.com. In fact, they have uh, a, a special page for Security Now listeners. That's uh, astaro.com, A-S-T-A-R-O.com slash security now. But you can also go to, uh, you can also call them at 877, the number four, Astaro, and uh, get a free demo unit for your business. So that's another way to find out more about the Astaro Security Gateway, especially for you PIX users. If you're being kicked off the Cisco PIX platform, Astaro has a discount just for you to move over to the right side. 877-427-8276. That's 877, the number four. Astaro. Astaro Security Gateways and now the new Astaro Web Gateway. Hardware appliances to protect your enterprise. Nobody does it better than Astaro. We thank them so much for their support of security now. So I'm glad we did this. I, you know, I, I want to reiterate uh, that the problem was that we did the TrueCrypt episode a- ahead of time. And so the I think the day before the TrueCrypt episode came out, but, but a week <laughs> after we recorded it, this yep. whole storm broke. So I'm glad we could it, it took us a little time, but we can get around to it and talk a little bit about it. And as you could see, it was nothing to freak out about, nothing to worry about. Well, and again, it's, uh, you know, it's it, it did raise a lot of people's concern. Um, I don't want to say nothing to worry about. I just want to say, well, probably something good to know about, though. Absolutely. It makes a perfect episode of Security yeah, Now. Yeah. Well, as, as always, uh, you are now going to pull ahead of This Week in Tech because uh, the uh, I'm going to Australia. And uh, so after we'll continue, by the way, don't worry, there's a security on episode next week and the week after we're going to pre-tape, <laughs> but not of Twit, not of Mac Break Weekly. You're starting, you're going to, you're now pulling ahead. The Yay. only show that is ahead of you now, there are two shows. One's the tech guy, but just because it started in 2004 and it does two a week and you can't, you'll never beat the Daily Gizwiz because yeah, he does five that, shows a week. That's, that, that's cheating, Leo Gizwiz. <laughs> I mean, could, could you not have numbered them like 1.1, 1. 1, 1. 1.2, 1. 1.3? Well, if you did that, you'd be winning. <laughs> okay. So next week, episode 138, Twit is uh, is in the dust. 
Uh, Security Now will be back next Thursday with the great Steve Gibson. And don't forget Steve's site, GRC.com. That's where you can go to get Spinrite, of course. The world's best, the world's only, really, true disk recovery and maintenance utility. It's a must-have for recovering those hard drives that uh, the boss is putting in the dark closet. <laughs> I, I hope boss is wiping the contents of those drives. Well, I, I was I'm sure about the employee is, I'm sure. Yes, yes. He's a good employee. He wouldn't dream of that. I yeah, he's, he's filling it with Myth TV video. Isn't that funny? So, he's got yeah. you know, every episode of CSI on there. You know, I'm sure the boss is not wiping them. You know, you know he's not. Well, especially when the drive dies. It's a little yeah. hard to well, wipe a dead drive. How do drive. I wipe it? Yeah. Yep. So security now, then wipe it. Spin right. Uh, spin right. And security now, then spin right, then wipe there it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and, also, and then you're really covered. When you go to GRC.com, you also find many great tools like uh, uh, Steve's Fun. And these are all free. Wismo, which now has that, what do you call it? Land wipe? Land? Landlock. Landlock feature. Uh, oh, sorry. Wan- turn, wan- landlock. Landlock. Turn off zero config, which is uh, really handy does a lot of other stuff too fun stuff and all his great security utilities it's all at grc.com including 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired and full transcripts so you can read along as you listen and i know many of you like to do that as well steve next week what do we do it's i guess q a time yeah we have a q a time uh and uh an interesting little uh a bit of uh news there's a someone has created a paper enigma machine we've talked oh, about cool. the, the german enigma machine yeah. there's a paper enigma machine uh, you can download a pdf and make one so we'll be talking about it at the top of the show then do our q a oh that's so cool well and if you don't know what an enigma machine is you're gonna find out yep all right well that'll be next week on security now we hope to see you then until then leo laporte steve gibson stay safe we'll see you next time security now